Hey, tennis fans, and welcome to another edition of Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. We're also members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre, and we are back to our regularly scheduled programming. Obviously finished up the National Bank Open and on to some regular episodes. And this week, Mike will be recapping the Western and Southern Open, but also hearing a fun conversation that you get to have uh, with Petra Kvitova. Yeah, this is one of our uh, sort of uh, holdovers that we put in the vault from the National Bank Open or Banque Nationale uh, Open in uh, Montreal. And uh, we've got a few more of those coming too. Won't give away who exactly, but we do have some good stuff to, to use in the uh, remainder of the summer hardcourt swing here. But uh, great to have Petra on uh, for a short chat. And uh, definitely lots to talk about from Cincinnati, which, uh, as I was thinking about it, is probably the least likely tournament I will ever get to go and attend in person because. After you and I wrap always a hectic week in Canada between Montreal and Toronto, there's no way I'm getting a pass to leave my kids for another week and, <laughs> right. and go do that one, you know? Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Maybe you're, you're more likely on the grounds of the All England Club or maybe even over in Melbourne than making Seriously. such a rapid turnaround to cover the Western and Southern Open strictly for scheduling reasons based on us being uh, working on the grounds in Toronto. But uh, Cincinnati, of course, another important Masters 1000. And um Let's start on the women's side and let's start with our world number one player because here is Ash Barty again capturing another title. And um, this is becoming so commonplace in 2021. She has five WTA titles this season, which um, comfortably leads the tour. She beat Jill Teichman, surprise finalist, uh, winning at 6 3 6 1. Barty did not drop a set the entire tournament. She really didn't even feel. Mm, especially challenged this tournament. Angelique Kerber maybe pushed her slightly in the second set of their semis, but this was a, a dominant, comfortable, hardcore title, a strong one. And you look at the resume that she's building up here just in this season alone, two WTA 1000s. We recall Miami where she took out Bianca in the final there. And then a Wimbledon champion as well. And it had me thinking how strong a number one player um, we have here. Yeah, she's been absolutely terrific. And I was reading sort of a recap from uh, WTA insider Courtney Nguyen, who we've, we've had on the podcast before. And so I'm stealing some of these stats from her. But, you know, she's 14-1 and one now. Ash Barty is against top 20 opponents this year. She leads the WTA in titles and match wins with 40. Uh, so she is just rolling along, which is so impressive considering she lost all of 2020, opting to pretty much stay home in Australia during the you know beginning of the pandemic first part of the pandemic and uh, kind of scary to think what she could have accomplished if she'd actually been playing during that time. Um, but she is looking like a, a very dominant number one at this point in time. Um, and you also have to consider the fact she's doing all this so far from home. It's not like she gets to go home after each tournament, regroup, settle down, see family, friends, what have you. She's been away from Australia for like half a year now. Yeah. Going and, strong uh... on the road, which is also very, very challenging. And uh, I mean, you raised a great point to me before we started recording, you know, is she the most dominant number one um, since Serena Williams held the, uh, the position for such a, a length of time? Yeah, look, um, I, I'm looking back at the history of some of our number ones, even just uh, over the past decade. Um, from the 2010s. Barty's been our only number one, of course, from the 2020s. But uh, 2010s, just going by weeks, for example, Serena Williams was number one for 236 of those weeks. So, of course, that's um, a clear cut above everybody else. Um, Caroline Wozniacki, fantastic player. I was so happy that, you know, she did get 
that Grand Slam title right at the end of her career. She was strong in WTA events, but um, that was the knock against her, right? That was exactly. the knock against her being number one until she won the slam. hundred percent was, is she a deserving number one? And we've heard that for, you know, plenty of, of different players over the years, but sorry, continue. Yeah, no, uh, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and then just looking at some of our other number ones, Simona Halep, I think was a very good number one. Um, her 2018 season stands out because she did uh, win that French open title. She was also in the finals there of Australia, but even the total resume of titles throughout the season, um, big match wins over top 10 players. It wasn't as strong as Barty's, um, you know, surprise number ones like Pliskova holding it briefly. Muguruza held it briefly. Of course, she was amazing in that sort of 2017 stretch and 2016 winning two Grand Slam titles. But the consistency, I don't think we've had this level of consistency from a number one player um, sort of week over week, tournament by tournament that um, Ash Barty's been able to produce. Angelique Kerber maybe has an argument for it when she was having her great stretch, but still, I think I would say this is the best we've seen since Serena held that mantle um, going back to 2014, 2015. Yeah, it's tough for me to really put it in perspective yet at this point uh, in terms of Barty's time in the role as number one, because for a big part of that, she wasn't playing and the rankings were frozen. This is no fault That's of her own. Uh, no fault of her own, of course, at all. But uh, the number one rankings really been interesting on the women in the women's game. If you look back, you know, to the beginning uh, of, of when the rankings were were kept in the open era, that number one ranking did not change hands for about twenty years very much. It was like Everett Navratilova, Graf Selis, and for twenty years it was basically those four. Um, and then in the late nineties, the Williams sisters, of course, came along. You had Justine Hennen, who who was a very solid number one for quite some time too. But it's been changing hands, as you mentioned, a lot lately. And all those players you mentioned are very good players, but none of them have been able to really consolidate. Mm-hmm. Um, Halep, I think, the, the only other one that comes to mind in recent years that uh, I believe finished 2017 and 18 as, as world number one. We'll see what, what Barty can do moving forward, but she certainly seems like the most likely at this point in time, the way she's playing, to continue and sort of hold a grip. I, I mean, I don't think Serena's ever going to come back and and take that number one ranking or, or hold it for any length of time because she doesn't play enough. Right. And with injuries and getting older and, and other priorities for her, I mean, she just wants to win that last slam, potentially two slams, I guess. Um, but Barty, I think is, uh, is definitely showing us that she's got the stuff. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And um, look, Naomi Osaka is also, been the number one player before and that was the topic that we would hear actually in 2020 particularly when Osaka won the U.S. Open in such convincing fashion and then won the Australian Open at the front of the end of the year the argument certainly could be made at that time well she is the best um, WTA player we have but um, surface by surface across all three surfaces in terms of success Barty is doing something nobody else on the tour is doing and she's one on hard she's one on clay she won Wimbledon on grass and uh, Osaka for me is is the best hardcore player in the world the best all-surface player and rightfully best world number one um, is Ash Barty yeah and Osaka's had that consistency over the course of winning a slam for four consecutive years now which is quite impressive mm-hmm. but as you said they're all hardcore slams so Barty's got that threat of uh, being able to do it anywhere yeah and um Continuing on with Cincinnati, and we'll get to just Canadian content here and um, over to Bianca Andrescu. We wanted reps. We wanted wins. There was so much concern over what happened, obviously, in Montreal. She, she did open with a long win over Harriet Dart, then lost that dramatic match against Anne Jabeur, had an issue with the toe. Um, but 
she made the quick turnaround. She was there ready to play in Cincinnati. Look, this is a tough opening round draw. Carolina Mukova is, is a tough, talented player, but uh, I must say I expected this one to be a lot more competitive and Mukova winning 6-4, 6-2, you know, comfortably taking out Bianca where I feel like this should be the time of the season where she's really playing her best tennis. She, she simply hasn't found it yet. And I don't know if that's um, consistently consistency lacking of she hasn't played enough events. She, she hasn't had just a regular type of season and really she hasn't had a regular type of season since 2019. How strange is it seeing her get defeated in two sets? Like how often does that right. happen? First, first of all, uh, and six, four, six, two is a pretty meek scoreline. I have to say um, she's got a tough stretch coming up and some stress that's no doubt going to you know manifest itself um, for her behind the scenes because she's got big time ranking points to defend in the coming weeks between the U.S. Open, the late edition of Indian Wells. Also, uh, if she continues on like this, she's going to see quite the tumble in the rankings. Um, you know, her Miami final against Barty seems like forever ago. That was her mm. last really big result. That was five months ago, almost at this point. And since then, her record is four wins and six losses. So it's been quite a struggle for her now. In that time, there's been other things going on, coaching changes, uh, injuries, um, the, the foot being the most recent, the toe being the most recent one. New coach was Sven Grunveld. That's going to take a while to sort of solidify itself. And, and who knows what new things they're trying that may take some time, you know, one step back, a few steps forward, that kind of thing. But for right now, Bianca Andreescu not really giving off that confident vibe that, uh, that she's going to be having a deep run at the U.S. Open as she did two years ago. No, and look, uh, this has been symptomatic for, I think, a lot of players post-winning a first Grand Slam, being able to back it up with strong results. In Bianca's case, staying healthy. To me, that was um, the biggest change that really happened because I, I think she was ready to back up those results if if she was healthy and fit to play after that U.S. Open. But that wasn't the case post-WTA Finals. It just didn't happen. But uh you know, looking back to last year, what's sort of Sophia Kennan and her season in 2021, nothing like what we saw last year winning an Australian Open finals at the French Open. So Bianca is not the only kind of player who's a bit lost searching for form, who's had great success in the past, won a slam in the past. I hope she can find it. Hard courts is certainly where she can find it. But um, also the parody on the women's side is like. Carolina Mukova, this, this is a very difficult draw. You know, that's that's someone that you think is a quality of more like a quarterfinal and not an opening round. And, and that was the reality right now um, with the rankings. You know, she's not in that top five right now. And as you said, uh, a couple thousand points set to come off from, from the U.S. Open. We'll see how much she can defend. But for me, that's not what she should be focusing on, defending her U.S. Open title, defending the points. I, I think she has to go back to the drawing board and and stick to, I would say, process right now over results. Yeah, well said. And uh, we should mention that there were some solid Canadian results from Cincinnati. Yes. With Gabby Dabrowski once again coming through in fine form to the finals. Uh, it was a loss this time. But on the way, her and her uh, Brazilian partner, who seemed to really be clicking, that's three finals in a row now for them. Uh, and they took out the Olympic champions, the Czech uh, team of uh, Krajcikova and uh, Siniakova. So that's very impressive what they've been able to do during these three tournaments. The, the hottest doubles team in women's tennis throughout this summer, hardcore stretch for, for sure. And uh, after two years without a title, you've got to consider her and her partner here um, potentially favorites uh, or certainly in the top two or three teams for, uh, for New York. 
Yeah, they they're definitely contenders, I think, uh, to, to win a Grand Slam together. Look, you called it a few weeks ago. You were saying Gabby Dabrowski needed to find a partner um, that she was playing with consistently because we were seeing too much turnover. We, we thought the prior year that that was maybe going to be Elena Ostapenko. That wasn't the case. It looks like Ostapenko is uh, mainly focused on the singles career um, right now, which is understandable. Uh, but she's found a, a perfect pairing here with the Brazilian Luisa Stefani, who has now just cropped uh, crack the top 20 in the rankings for doubles as well. And yeah, you look at the teams, they beat Krajcikova and Siniakova. Those two won, um, you know, the French Open earlier this season. Pagula and Azarenka, they came through 10-7 in the super breaker there. So getting to the finals right after they just won Montreal, they're in the final of Silicon Valley Classic. I absolutely think they have a great shot in New York at a U.S. Open title, and they, they seem to blend and mesh so well. Gabby's so dominant at net, such a force there. So um, this could be a, a team to be reckoned with moving forward, and I, I hope the partnership can last. And in New York, there'll also be uh, mixed doubles. I would assume mixed doubles is going to be back this year because I don't think it was at the tournament a year ago, um, if memory serves correctly. So, um, you know, Gabby will be always contending in that one. She's had plenty of success in the mixed world in the past. So great to see what's happening for her. And, uh, you know, we've talked to her several times in the past on the podcast, and uh, she's always such an articulate, thoughtful and, uh, you know, deep minded um, thinker. And uh, it's just great to see someone like that having the success. Great for Canada too. So there's always somebody, it seems like from Canada, whether it's in men's singles, women's singles, doubles, what have you, there always seems to be someone that uh, is having a good run. And so for right now, it's, uh, it's Gabby Dabrowski. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's been a terrific run. Um, we should get to our terrific guest, two-time Wimbledon champion uh, that you spoke to uh, just a bit over a week ago. Uh, She was based in Montreal and and you had a great chat. Uh, Here's Mike's conversation with Petra Kvitova. Thanks for joining us on Matchpoint Canada uh, for a short chat here, Petra. We really appreciate your time today. Thank you as well. I was refreshing my memory a bit on your career and looking at your WTA resume and noticed, of course, your 28 career titles, which is a pretty astonishing number. That's a whole lot of trophies. I was wondering, where do you keep all of those? Yeah, it's quite a number, I would say as well. Uh, all of them actually are in my um, parents' apartment when they have it, everything. But uh, at some point, it will be in the Hall of Fame in Fulneng when I was born. Um, so, yeah. Um, my parents will have more more space for another thing. So none of those Wimbledon trophies are like sitting at your living room or dining room table or anything like that. No, 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 it's not. It's not. It's pretty, you know, hidden. So some of them are like visible in the living room, but uh, not really Wimbledon play, uh, trophies. Gotcha. Of the events that you haven't won yet in your career, whether it be a bigger tournament or a smaller tournament. Is there one or two tournaments in particular that you'd love to add to that collection, if you could? Yeah, of course, the Grand Slams. I would love to. Um, Australian Open, French Open. It would be amazing. But um, yeah. And other ones, I'm not sure. Um, uh, Tough to say, actually. Um, It's tough when you have so many, I guess. No, it's not. <laughs> but for example, Rome, because it's a beautiful city and uh, I, the conditions are not never less suits me. So that would be nice as well. And you've got one Canadian one from 2012, if I'm correct. And that would have been back in Montreal. Is that right? Yeah. 
So maybe the Toronto one at some point then. Yeah, why not? <laughs> there you go. Um, wanted to talk to you about your, uh, uh, your love of the Olympics and uh, recently you participated in your third Olympic Games. You've got a bronze medal, of course, uh, previously. Where does that achievement rank for oh. you? Pardon me? Fourth Olympics. Oh, gotcha. Uh, <laughs> I got to do my, my math a little I'm, bit better. I'm pretty old. Okay. What did you want to ask? We, we won't tell anybody. That's okay. Um, I was going to ask you, where does that rank your Olympic uh, participation, your Olympic success in the grand scheme of, of your career? Uh, well, definitely to have a bronze medal from Rio was highlight. Um, from all my Olympics uh, in London, of course, I had a good chance playing on the grass, but unfortunately, I lost in the quarters, and it was very painful, actual loss that time. Um, so definitely to um, um, be able to win a medal uh, in tennis and Olympics was um, something really um, great, and uh, I'm really putting very very high. Even I have a two women trophies. Um, this is special and different uh, because it's just one thing for years going for a country and uh, at the time I really enjoyed it so much to you know uh, be there and actually to lose in the semi-final and playing for the bronze it was something really weird and right, all uh, special and tough to be honest I played medicine after losing to Monica Puig and I was like wow this is much tougher than semi-final against Monica so for me mentally it was really difficult and is that bronze medal at your parents place as well I guess with the trophies actually bronze medal I have in my apartment so uh, that's the only thing which I have actually there you go what was the Tokyo experience like because obviously you couldn't have as much freedom as in previous years and enjoy it in the same way um how did it feel for you overall it feels different. Uh, yeah, I mean, in this kind of situation, I mean, we're still being pretty pleased that the Olympics happened. So that's one great thing. Uh, yeah, it was different. We couldn't really, you know, chat, see other athletes that much as probably we wanted to. But on the other hand, it was still, you know, in the village was kind of almost everything similar. Um, compared to other Olympics. But of course, with no people playing tennis, it's very sad. And uh, it's not good for sport, to be honest. So, yeah, of course, I prefer to uh, play in front of the crowd. And even the athletes couldn't go watch, which was very sad as well. I don't understand why, because it was closed. And even in the village, we were still mixing up in the, you know, in the dining uh, area or everywhere. So I just didn't get it. Unfortunately, that's how it was. And, uh, yeah. Maybe it will help, help me, actually, but who knows? You'll just have to go back for Paris in 2024, I guess, right? Oh, it's just three years, right? Like everybody. <laughs> <laughs> hey, one last question before I let you go, if you don't mind, is uh, how are you feeling right now heading into the U.S. Open, which is coming up soon, the last Grand Slam of the year, and, and one that you'd obviously love to add to your collection? Uh, well, I didn't read the semifinal over there, so uh, we'll see how it's going, everything, but... Uh, I'm really looking forward for sure. It's the last Grand Slam, last kind of highlight of the year. Um, uh, the great news is that it will be full crowd, like almost no no rules for us. So that's how I'm going to enjoy it for sure, because last year was totally different. And, you know, being like playing on the center with no crowd, it was so weird. And 
yeah, it was just, you know, normal in New York is like, you know, showtime and full of people and crowded and everything. And suddenly like it was, yeah, different. Well, enjoy, enjoy the buzz, enjoy the energy. Thank you for taking the time, Renee. We're, we're big fans of yours and of Katie Spellman's too, I should say. Katie, <laughs> thank you. Okay, bye now. There you have it, uh, Mike, your interview with Petra Kvitova. I love that you like this uh, trophy question, which is a good one. Uh, finding out where where do these star athletes keep all of their trophies? Do they have You've a collection? Noticed. I've noticed, noticed that's, I've that's, asked that one before. Huh? That's been a bit of a theme, and, and I like themes, so that's You great. know what it is? I just didn't have enough trophies myself growing up. <laughs> so it's uh, envy. I mean, I had a few in hockey, that's true, but uh, none in tennis, never mm-hmm. even close. So I think it's just envy and wanting to put myself in their shoes and think, where would I put my Olympic bronze medal or my Wimbledon dish or what have you, you know? So yeah, I couldn't help it. And, uh, you know, trying to start things off on more of a playful sort of note. I, I got to say, I didn't know I was getting Petra for that interview until like five minutes beforehand. So it was all very much like rush, rush. And uh, I was just trying to put something together that was kind of cohesive and kind of flow. Oh yeah, no, it was good. But also, you know, a little bit, um, I don't know, it seemed a little scattered at <laughs> a couple moments there. I think my son walked in um during during (laughs) the early stages of the interview as well and I was like hand signaling to him so um all in all uh you know it was just great to have her for the first time on the pod and and have a short chat which is what we were allowed with the players during the um National Bank and and Banque Nationale tournaments um what a player though I mean aside from her uh, resiliency off the court and her hers we talked about consistency earlier she's been such a consistent top 10 type player for so long now uh, the two Wimbledons, the bronze medal at the Olympics. Um, yeah, one of the one of the, the best players of the last 10, 12 years, I would say, on the women's side. Yeah, for me, she's uh, 100% a Hall of Famer, without a doubt. I, I think she's easily a Hall of Famer. She's been fantastic. Um, interesting, you, you know, you asked uh, what tournaments, what titles she would love to, to have. And, and beyond, of course, everybody would love another Grand Slam. But she mentioned Rome, which uh, stood out to me. So obviously that tournament, that clay uh, title would mean a lot to her if she can make that happen. Bronze medal is meaning, meaningful for her. And and I was thinking of um, her pushing for another slam. And you look at some results over the past few years, she's come close, especially Australia 2019. Such a competitive final with Naomi Osaka. I mean, that match could have gone either way. So she was right there. Um, she made semifinals at the French Open last year as well. And I had kind of high hopes for her at the French Open this season, but then she was derailed by an injury. But a healthy Petra Kvitova, She's one of those players when she is on, she can kind of take the racket right out of your hands. And I I have a good memory of that, that Wimbledon 2014 final against Jeannie Bouchard, where that's kind of what happened to Jeannie. Um, Petra was just in an absolute zone. And, and when she's, she's playing that way, she's almost impossible to beat. And I see in your notes here uh, something, and I wasn't familiar with this one, but that Rebecca Marino um, picked Petra as an athlete. She most, admires that's right so when i spoke with uh, rebecca a bit earlier this season on the podcast um part of my rapid fire questions one of the themes i always go back to and i did ask her um who's an athlete you you really admire and uh she thought about it for a moment she said Petra Kvitova, um and noting obviously her resilience coming back from um you know that terrifying knife attack and and returning to have such a fantastic career and also just said she's such a great role model and great person, um, which she emphasized. And uh, you can tell she's such a friendly and nice, nice person to speak with. And I, I'm glad uh, you got that chance. 
And she's got a great agent too, Katie Spellman, who is uh, very close with Tennis Canada, helps run the uh, tournament uh, with the comms department um, the last few years as well in Toronto. Um, and she's she's super kind. She represents both uh, Petra and Simona Halep. So, um, you know, two players that... Uh, did we speak with Simona recently? No, I talked to her in nope. general press. See, we've talked to so many players lately <laughs> that I'm starting to lose track, which is a good position to be in. And, yeah. uh, you know, we had great coverage during the tournaments in Montreal and Toronto, and we're going to have great coverage again during the U.S. Open as we both got our virtual press passes for a second consecutive year. So that should bode well, as uh, you know, again, for having player access throughout those two weeks, hopefully. Yeah, very, very excited about that. We'll talk about uh, the U.S. Open coming up shortly, but shifting over to the men's side and what happened in Cincinnati there at the Western and Southern Open. Um, Alexander Zverev has been playing outstanding tennis he won the olympic gold had that great comeback win over novak djokovic uh defeated karen hatchinov in the final to capture gold he missed toronto he wasn't there but um his first tournament back from the olympics he gets his second masters 1000 of the season winning the western and southern open his fifth masters title of his career um and comfortably defeated andre rublev in the final this tournament was a bit different than toronto um in the sense that Toronto had a lot of parody, like we, we had the surprising run from Riley Opelka. We had, you know, Tsitsipas going out earlier than expected. Rublev going out earlier than expected. Medvedev was the winner. That wasn't a surprise, but our final four here, were actually our top four seeds. And for me, the top four contenders to Novak Djokovic for the U S open in Medvedev, Tsitsipas, Zverev, who won it and, and Rublev. It's almost like a glimpse into the future. When you see the draw and you see the top four names, because yeah. And I don't mean like the near future because Novak's not going anywhere anytime soon. And fingers crossed that Rafa can come back healthy in 22 and, and Roger Federer maybe have one last little, you know, uh, splash as well on the tour. But, uh, but this is what it is going to look like down the road at some point. Eventually, these are the guys. It's not it's not like the Miloshes and, and Dimitrovs and Kane Shikori's. We know for sure or as sure as you can, I would say that these four guys and a few others, you know, Chapo and Felix, of course, in there too. These are going to be the guys that are going to be fighting for majors, going to be fighting for masters, 1000s. And it's interesting looking at that draw. And I think a lot of people might look at that draw and say, oh, well, it's missing the big three. But to me, I look at that, that draw and those names and I'm excited about what they offer in terms of the tennis and uh, the, the future rivalries and how those are going to play out in years to come. Yeah, and I, I think it produced, honestly, some really exciting tennis. Uh, Zvera versus Tsitsipas in the semifinals was probably the standout match of the tournament. Three-set thriller, goes 7-6 in the third. Um, incredibly high level. I, I just want to bring this up because it was making the rounds on Twitter that evening uh, that between sets, Stefano Tsitsipas um, went for, I, I believe it was probably called a bathroom break, which, of course, you're allowed to do. Um, and he did take 10 minutes to return. The, the thing that everybody was talking about is when he left, he brought his tennis bag with him, which is a bit unusual, maybe to change clothes. That that could be the idea. Um, but you could hear Zverev talking to the chair umpire that he has his phone with him in his bag, which I believe is true. And then uh, the camera panned over to Stefanos's father, seen texting away. Is it possible that Stefanos and his father were texting in the middle of this match um, and he was getting coaching tips? I don't know. It was all a bit unusual, though. Didn't help him in the end, I guess, did it? No, ultimately. no, it didn't. Uh, but it wasn't it, a good look. And it seems to be like CC Pass is making this a thing, like a regular thing. We saw that 
long bathroom break in Toronto as well, I believe, in one of his matches. Yeah, he uh, took a break against Felix too. That was not ten minutes, but close to eight. Long, right? It was long. So I, I don't know what's going on. I feel like tournaments in the ATP maybe you have to have a good uh, look at it. It's because it's not a good look for the sport. It's not good for TV. It's right. not good for fans in attendance. Um, you know, and in a sport with no coaching, it also doesn't look good when there's that. Uh, you know, illusion or, or insinuation of, of something potentially going on. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Do you take away your coach's phone if you leave the court? I don't know what the, the, you know, the secret is there, but I think something needs to be addressed because I just don't think it looks good. No, it's, it's not a good look. And it's not like you're on commercial break either. You're, you're on the broadcast and the commentators are filling dead air, waiting for the player to come back and, and play the match. So that was a bit unusual. I, I'm not going to say firmly here, nor there that uh, that he was cheating or anything like that. I don't know, but it, it was certainly an unusual look. And uh, Tsitsipas was close in that semifinal, but it's Zverev who uh, beats him there and gets the title. Andre Rublev did get a big win over Daniil Medvedev, I believe, the first time he's beaten him in his career. And this was after losing the the first set pretty comfortably. He totally turned the match around. And afterwards, he had a, a funny little quote when he was asked about how tough it was. He he compared beating Medvedev to. He called it like graduating from university, which I thought was a, a pretty funny little line from uh, from Andre Rublev, who's playing nice te- nice tennis going into this U.S. Open. And so maybe you know, as some of our listeners mentioned, that there was some sort of a curse of players we talked to in Toronto who ended up losing their next match. Yeah, maybe it's just a delayed um, you know impact in terms of the positive results on the court as Rublev here. Uh, made it to the finals. Uh, one other thing I want to say, and, and just quickly, but I do want to assert this, and this is just my personal opinion, is I do have trouble giving Zverev attention when he has success and keeping it just to the tennis court because I'm still uh, peeved, I guess, you know, to mm-hmm. keep it somewhat polite here, to the serious allegations of of domestic violence that surfaced last year and were never really properly addressed, in my opinion, by the player. Uh, never really properly looked at or addressed by the ATP. And um, I just, you know, should players like him even be competing on the tour without some sort of full process or investigation? And and where's the ATP's proper stance on issues like this? Because he's not the first, and unfortunately he might not be the last either where this kind of thing comes up. And it just doesn't seem like the tour has any real idea of how to handle it. And they keep promoting them and it just feels really awkward to me. And it's just a bad message to all the female fans, uh, you know, and, and male fans too, of course, who support uh, our female counterparts out there. And, and, you know, there's a serious matter that I don't think was handled seriously. Yeah, and look, he's not the only one. Uh, these allegations also surfaced involving Nicholas Basilashvili the other year. And um, yeah, there is no domestic violence policy or any kind of policy on, on the ATP or the WTA for that matter. Um, and this might be kind of also an issue of the fact that there's no players union or association. These other leagues have that in existence. And, you know, we, we see similar issues um, just for a quick reference to major league baseball, um, LA Dodgers pitcher, Trevor Bauer under investigation. He's been placed on administrative leave by, by MLB for months now um, because they're in the middle of that investigation and that was never going to happen to Zverev uh, nor will I guess it happen to any player if allegations surface so that is a problem I and I don't know that the ATP plans on addressing it because they haven't really said anything so they've yeah, well, it of... seems it seems to me like they just want to protect their rising star and not tarnish his image and marketability which is a terrible um, position and, and way of going about things so I don't know if I'm ever going to get over it. I think, you know, Zverev wins the slam finally. 
we'll have to mention it. It's a tennis result. Yeah. That's, and I, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I think uh, our listeners will notice as I uh, let in on our men's side of uh, Cincinnati, I just was pretty matter of fact that Sasha Zverev was our winner of this title. And uh, we do have to say that he's playing great tennis. And I should mention, he probably is one of the top contenders at the U S open outside of Novak Djokovic. I won't shed any tears if he goes out early, but anyways, right. On to the next, on to the next item. (laughs) On to the next item. And it has to be our Canadian who was, well, we had two Canadians here, but uh, uh, we'll start with uh, the positive news. And that was Felix Ojealiasim. For me, kind of riding the ship after a disappointment in Toronto, um, made the quarterfinals and had a few very nice wins, specifically uh, a great match against Hachinov. Uh, Hatchinov did make a lot of errors in this match, but I, I felt like Felix really elevated his game when he needed to, came through in three sets there, uh, beat Wimbledon finalist Matteo Berrettini comfortably in straight sets, very strong win there before falling to Stefano Tsitsipas in three. So this is the type of tournament I think Felix needed to have leading into the U.S. Open. Yeah, I mean, it was starting to look like Felix needed a grass court tournament like all year long for him to have success in 2021, yeah. unfortunately, with his struggles on clay and, and couldn't get it going on hard court either. I mean, it's too bad he couldn't have had a run like this at home here in Canada. That would have been wonderful to see, but uh, nice to see it happening now. And hopefully this is, he seems like a player who really, um, you know, relies on his confidence and uh, maybe that's such a cliche or an obvious thing to look at, but when he's down, he really looks down and seems unable yeah. to kind of get himself out of that rut mid match or, or mid tournament. And so hopefully this gives him the boost to to get the gears really going for him heading into New York. Yeah, yeah. You could almost see it um, in his demeanor and in his eyes when he got things going against Hachinov in that third and final set. I felt like his intensity, his intensity is high. Don't get me wrong. His intensity is always high. But you could see the confidence that he was like, I found my game. He had that look in his eye of like this competitor who was like, I'm going to win this match now. Like he was he was finding a shot. His forehand was clicking. His serve was big when it needed to be. And those were kind of little elements that were missing, say, at the Olympics where he went out early and and Toronto as well, where he went out early to Dusan Lajevic. So I, I hope he carries that to the U.S. Open. He did very well at the U.S. Open last year. We remember a nice run to the round of 16. Um, so it's a place he feels comfortable. Denis Shapovalov, on the other hand, um, look, this is there's no way to sugarcoat it. This has been a terrible North American hardcore swing. It's been brutal. Um, losing, all obviously. Matches. All two matches. All two matches, right? Uh Toronto, obviously, major disappointment. We talked about the windy day and him just not adapting to the conditions the way he needed to and losing to Tiafo, And then losing to Benoit Paire. This was a, a major surprise. I will say <laughs> Benoit Paire does play a much higher level of tennis when there's a crowd, when there's an audience, when he can have a nightlife at the tournament as well. He joked about this with uh, Prakash Amritaj actually on the Tennis Channel panel saying how um, he, he likes to go out to restaurants. He likes to have a beer and a drink. And that's what he likes to have fun in the city where he's traveled to while playing tennis and he got that I think in Cincinnati and brought out some of the best in his game all that being said uh, a top level Denis Shapovalov just doesn't lose a match to Benoit Pair, and, that, and that's what happened here it wasn't a top Dennis yeah although let's say uh, you know to give credit here Benoit Pair made the quarterfinals in Cincy so he did, he did. beat a few other players as well and pushed Rublev to three sets and beat John Isner who's been playing pretty hot tennis lately um, also, who had made the um, semis? God help me out here. Semis, thank you in Toronto. Um, so you know you got to look at that as well. Not to take away from the fact that yeah, he should have been able to beat him. 
but for pair the first uh, Masters 1000 quarterfinal since I think it was 2013. Is that right? That uh, that sounds correct. I'd I have think to that's what was going on. I, I looked that, it up but... myself and I had to do a lot of scrolling to get down <laughs> to. It was uh, Rome, I believe, of 2013 for him. So um, what a quirky dude, that Benoit pair. And uh, for Chapeau, 0-2. But you know he's the type of player that can, you know, almost like snap the fingers and get on a real heater. So is that going to happen in, in New York or maybe we'll get a strong false swing out of Dennis? I hope so because, uh, yeah, it's not looking super inspiring at the moment. Do you think best three out of five is maybe better suited for Shapovalov? Good question. Um, huh. And you even think about actually his Wimbledon run. He gets all the way to the semifinals. Um, people forget he was in big trouble that opening round match against Philip Kohlschreiber. That went five sets. He gutted that one out. Like He's battled should... out a few, right? Five, top yeah. five setters over the last couple of years. There was the match, who was it last year? Was it against Fritz at the uh, Yeah, Taylor US Fritz. Open? He came back in the fifth there to win. So um, this is maybe... a an off comparison here, but uh, Stan Favrinka sometimes has very patchy results. If we go to peak Stan Favrinka, he has some very patchy results sometimes throughout the season at certain tournaments. Um, but he's, he's like a big match player. He's a rhythm player. And when he gets on a heater, uh, the damage he's capable of doing, uh, maybe Dennis is, I don't know if Dennis is always going to be that kind of player, but that's the player he is right now. And well, maybe the lead in is not, is not right. one that I think is necessarily, you know, made for consistency week in week out, like a dominant yeah. uh, type of, of guy. But uh, Hey, look, if he follows a Stan Wawrinka career path and ends up with three slams, I mean, I'd take that. I think yeah. most Canadian tennis fans would think so. would take that. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we'll see what happens. Uh, I, I think as bad as the first two tournaments here ahead of the U.S. Open have been, they might not be a predictor whatsoever for what he can do at the U.S. Open. And he's played very well at the U.S. Open in the past quarterfinals last year, nearly got past Carreño Busta to make the semis. Just touching on Canadians that we do have in U.S. Open qualifying, it's getting underway uh, today as this episode is out. Braden Schnur, Peter Polanski, Steven Diaz, they are all there. We remember Braden Schnur had a nice run in Toronto qualifying for the main draw there. Rebecca Marino um, on the heels of an amazing tournament in Montreal. She'll be and qualifying uh, on the women's side. So some opportunities for four different players. I I really think at least one of them can get in. I hope so. And I mean, I think Marino is probably the best bet given how she's been playing lately. What a great time in, in Montreal for her. On the men's side, Schnur, Polanski, and Diaz, it kind of feels like it's those three in qualifying at every slam for the yep. past couple of years. Um, so hopefully they can put something together. And, and on the female side, I almost want to mention, well, here I am, I'm going to mention Emma Raducanu who's also in there. And she yes. was born in Toronto, so I'm going to throw her in there, even though she represents Great Britain. Yeah, yeah, we want to claim her as well, which I think is somewhat fair. Uh, I'll also just bring up the news that I'm sure every tennis fan is aware of. Uh, Rafael Nadal pulling the plug on not only the U.S. Open, but his entire 2021 season. Dominic Team um, also pulling the plug on the U.S. Open. It looks like he is probably out for the remainder of the year, which is interesting. I thought back, those are our two past champions of this event team winning in 2020 Nadal taking it in 2019 they're gone and Roger Federer of course um, he'll be on crutches for weeks having another surgery to deal with his back and he will probably his, be, knee, miss, his knee his knee sorry not back um, he's also had back issues in the past um, and he will miss months of action so two of our big three gone and then Dominic team who I, I feel like 
2021 has basically been a lost year for him. Yeah, he's going to want to turn the page on that one. And, uh, you know, as we get ready for our U.S. Open preview episode uh, next week and covering the event for two weeks, the big story on the men's side is will Djokovic be able to complete the calendar year Grand Slam? And, and that is going to be dominating the talk for every one of his potentially seven matches there. Um, I'm pretty stoked to see what happens. I, whether it happens or not, I hope he, he has a deep run. I hope he's in the finals. Could, could you imagine stepping out there on that court and, and feeling the, the weight of that moment? Um, it would just build a lot of hype for tennis. I think it'd be a great story. A lot of people would tune in. And, um, and I'm all for it if it happens. And if it doesn't, the guy still ended up with three slams this year. So, you know, that's a heck of a run. Oh yeah. And I mean, if it, if it doesn't happen with a calendar slam, it seems like a foregone conclusion that surely Djokovic will surpass the 20 number and get to 21 at some point, if it's not the U S open, but uh, we'll talk about that on the preview episode. He will be uh, certainly uh, again, the favorite, much like he was an overwhelming favorite at Wimbledon. You've been listening to match point Canada guys. We will talk to you next time. <laughs>